Welcome to the Words of Grace podcast, where we discuss faith journeys, fellowship, and stories from across the Diocese of Sheffield. Each week, we will feature guests from a broad range of backgrounds and traditions within the Church of England. Our mission is to delve deeper into matters of faith and to ask each guest what has drawn them to Christianity. I'm Paul Sheridan, and I'm here with my colleague and co-host, Ben Fern. Looking ahead to the year ahead now, Paul, of course. Looking ahead to the year ahead. Nicely done. Yes, we are. And seeing if, can we stop saying Happy New Year on emails now? That's the etiquette I want to Well, do. I've done two emails today. Well, obviously this is recorded slightly before it's gone out, but I've done two emails today with Happy New Year at the start and felt slightly a bit weird about it, but I think it was okay. But I'm not sure what the date cutoff is. It's tricky because I think you could cut off now, but then if you've not spoken to someone in a while or you're speaking to someone the first time with the email, it yes. feels like you need to do a Happy New Year. Happy Epiphany we could still go with, couldn't we? Exactly, yeah. Yes. Anyway, the year ahead, we've, we've got some great guests lined up, and we are able to announce, aren't we? we able to if announce? we've not teased it already, I think we can announce it. Yeah, we're off to York early February, Ben and I, to uh, interview Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell. Very much a friend of the podcast. Well, very much your friend. I think we got him <laughs> because um, you're on his Christmas card list, I hear. He follows me on Twitter, or Does what he? was Twitter now? Well, that's no, the same. Yeah. Basically a friend. Aren't you? We're on X, formerly known as Twitter. That's what you've got to say now, technically. Yeah, I pestered him when he came for the visit to the diocese because I was following him around taking photos covering the event, and he was very patient with that. So, yeah, I think we're on we're on good terms. Yeah, on good terms with him, Cathy, aren't you? Well, I have seen him at General Synod a few times, yes. and I was very lucky that the Diocese and Environment Officers from the Northern Province were invited to Bishopsthorpe for a lunch um. and to hear some fantastic talks from what people were doing in that area in York Diocese um, relating to eco-church. I think he wants to talk about faith in the north, doesn't he? And Tottenham Hotspur, I imagine. <laughs> faith in the north or Tottenham Hotspur, which will be first? Probably Tottenham Hotspur, I don't oh, right, know. Okay, crumbs, do you have them? I might not say too much away, just in case. But anyway, he, he fell down when I mentioned it too, and then I mentioned I was a Derby fan and said, oh, never mind. Oh, Could right, okay, always go, this is where we start then. Yeah. But yeah, so no, we're, we've got some other great guests lined up, and Ben's been very busy on the emails the last few days lining up some guests, so we're... Uh, we're going to get for a coffee shortly, listener, to, to line them all up and get them all penciled in. But yeah, there's some great guests to come, so looking forward to it. And it means we're back into the swing of um, weekly episodes. Oh. We had the Christmas break, but um, yeah. we're, we're well covered now and got we are. irons in the fire as well. You need to get the listening numbers sorted out for next week. We'll announce how our listening numbers are doing. And yes, very well in short, but yeah. If um, Azerbaijan is still high on the list. <laughs> of course, uh, we, you might not know this, Cathy, but we, um, there's a drill down of where listeners come from and there's some very sort of um, far corners of the globe. Is that a word for that, right? Yes, I think yeah. so. Let's go with that. I think Argentina's. I've got one listener, I think. Well, well, that is uh, one of our partner dioceses, isn't it? Of course, yes. Yeah. So that true. might be why. That might be, that's great. It's great. Someone in the room knows what they're talking about. It makes a difference to us, Ben, doesn't yeah, it? Absolutely. But yeah, so um, there's some. <laughs> yeah, so we, we might drill down and we might do a little uh, a run out of, of where, we're, where we're hot and where we're not. Indeed, that's a good idea. Thanks. Should we get on to our guests? Please do. So, Cathy Rhodes, Dr. Cathy Rhodes, very well, uh, big welcome to you. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Thank so, you for having me. Cathy's bio is extraordinary, really. There's lots of, um, you know, covers different parts of the globe. So, Cathy spent her childhood in Iran and was born in Singapore? No, I went to Singapore when I was a baby. My sister was born there, though. Oh, very good. Uh, so, you lived in Iran for part of your childhood with your three sisters, where your father was a CMS missionary doctor. Cathy studied medicine at Bristol, where she met Matthew, who was ordained in 1994. They enjoyed working overseas in New Zealand and Cairo, settling in Birmingham with their son and daughter in 2000, 
where Cathy trained and worked as a consultant obstetrician. Have I pronounced that correctly? Yes, well, full marks. Well oh, done. Thank you. I saw the word before. I'm going to trip <laughs> I saw it That's coming. I thought, here we go. I thought we were going to have a Daniel McGuinness Houston Houston moment. I was it. worried. Yeah. <laughs> Whew. Passed that test. Uh, Cathy took early retirement in 2019. Uh, she moved with Matthew to Sheffield in 2018, where Matthew became vicar of St. John's Ranmore. Cathy's passionate about our Christian calling to work for climate justice and a holistic approach to the climate and nature crisis. Uh, she was delighted to be invited by Bishop Pete to volunteer as Diocesan Environment Officer in spring 2020. Despite the pandemic, those four years saw a big increase in A. Rosher eco-churches from 1662. We're going to touch on that a bit later on. Cathy loves singing in the St. John's Choir and developing the Vicarage Garden for Wildlife with Matthew. She was elected to General Synod in 2021, is a supporter of Inclusive Church and is chair of General Synod Environment Group. And she's just been elected to a five-year term as a church commissioner. Cathy, welcome. Thank you for having me. Lovely to see you both. You too, Cathy. I think we were saying the best place to start thing is the sort of missionary background. So mm. obviously moved around a lot as a, as a youngster. What was that sort of experience like? Were you always expecting to sort of be on the move, going somewhere else, or did you feel settled at times from where you moved about? Um, I think it's a combination of both. I think when you move a lot, especially as a child, you get used to making wherever you are your home for that point in time. And of course, very lucky I've got three younger sisters. I was always with my immediate family. So were you with the bossy older sister? I'm afraid so. Could you tell? Uh, (laughs) He's not saying anything. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) I'm the youngest in my family. Yeah, so I, I felt fortunate in that regard. But on the other side of the coin, I think I probably moved schools back and forth about 12 times. So it's a bit disruptive for your childhood schooling, although you have amazing experiences as well when you get the privilege of living and working overseas. And I imagine lots of deep conversations as a family about faith sort of growing up that mm. happened. Well, I think... Um, I think when you are in the missionary field, and my, my father was a medical missionary, he spent his th- our first three years in Singapore was because he was a doctor in the RAF and we went there. But then when um, they were flying to Singapore, my parents flew over Iran and my mum looked down at the mountain ranges that you can see from the plane, which are just beautiful, and said, oh, I'd quite like to go there one day. And when they returned back to England, they sort of felt that calling um, and were selected by CMS to be missionaries and ended up in Iran um, in Shiraz, which is a, a beautiful city near Persepolis, which is a very famous... And what years were you there? Thing. Post-revolution, I'm presuming. No, no pre-revolution. pre-revolution. It okay. was pre-revolution, actually. So um, we were there, really, it's the 70s. Right, OK. So came back in the late 70s. We actually... Um, when you work for CMS, you do three years and then you come home for what was called a sabbatical oh, for six yeah. months, mm-hmm. which is part of the school changes. You know the story. And well, the furlough was one of the words that, in yes. my, my background from, um, that was people that came home on furlough. And yes. then that word was never used no. until when it came out in the pandemic. Of course. Everyone yes. said furlough. But it's, what does this mean? And I said, well... It's a time when you have a time off, but yeah, anyway, go on. Yes, for some reason they called it a sabbatical, and it was a good six months, and it always was the sort of post-Easter terms. We did that twice, um, and of course were sort of parachuted into schools for just a small number of weeks. But um, essentially, um, I think that the experience of being in Iran, we were in a compound. My father worked in the missionary hospital, which is called the Bimaristan Masihi in Farsi, and there was the church was on the compound and the, the other local missionaries, the, the priest, um, Aristu Saya, who was a convert from Islam, who was actually murdered during the revolution. So that was the other side of it, that our time there, having had a very happy family time there, got to know many Iranians, learned to speak Farsi because we studied it at school. 
uh, we went back in the autumn just as things became unsettled after our second sabbatical. And um, there was rioting in the streets and we were able to go to school at the beginning, to the international school, myself and my sisters. But then the rioting was too bad and the bus couldn't get through. It wasn't safe. So we're in the compound listening to rioters outside in, in the streets um, and gunfire. I remember sitting in the church at a Persian surface, this little church, a beautiful little church built in the traditional style and listening to gunshots while we were at our evening service. And it got to the point where the British Council said, right, you need to go back. So my father stayed behind. Oh, wow. Um, and I left with my, my mother and, and three sisters and a couple of other missionary families on the plane. It was the last plane out of Shiraz, and we managed to get seats because one of the companies was taking their workers out, one of the British companies. And so that was very, obviously very traumatic when it seemed goodbye to my dad and to another sort of um, missionary father at the airport and coming and landing in London and being put in a house by CMS um, in southeast London. And there's very little communication. And during that time, um, people were, you know, it became very dangerous for Christians. Mm -hmm. And very sadly, Aristosiah, the local priest, was, was murdered uh, when people knocked on his door. And my dad was actually called to see him by his son wow. um, at that time. So it was a very... It was a very profound and obviously tr deeply traumatic time uh, for the for the church in Iran. And I think I have always felt a heart for Christians and other people of faith who are persecuted in the country where and they are, that back. tiny church. I've thought about it a few times. Mm. Um, I haven't been back and nobody in our family has been back. My dad, when he came out, it was just such a huge relief that he came out safely, but also a terrible knowledge that all our friends there were and the, the church was closed down the hospital was taken over i mean they th there is a remnant there and people continued to try to worship um and my mum and dad were involved in the iran diocesan association with lots of other people and bishop gully who is a bishop who i actually uh, meet at general synod now i knew her as a child and um my, my family kept in touch with her family Kathy mentioned Ionius a world away from mm. most traditional upbringing, sort of inverted commas. You mentioned that sort of graphic imagery of, you know, violence in the streets, mm. gun, gunfire, that sort of thing. When you got that last plane out of Iran, what age were you? Can you remember? Um, I was 14, I think. Um, because so quite formative, really, in a lot of respects. Oh, it's, not, it's not like a small child coming out. I can just, it's, it's there, isn't it? Yes, and I think... Um, I mean, I feel really blessed to have spent a lot of time overseas. You know, I also spent time in New Zealand. I travelled quite a lot as a medical student in Southeast Asia. And then we lived in Cairo for three years. Matthew got a job there as chaplain. And I think because I'd grown up overseas, it wasn't in intimidating. It's always different in every country. But people would say, oh, my goodness, you're going out to Cairo. And I took my daughter, who was only a few weeks old when, we, when I went out with her and um, with our son, who was four. And we didn't, you know, because of having grown up overseas. So you do get that familiarity with living in different countries. But it was it was a very traumatic time, and particularly with schooling, being parachuted into the local school, uh, which wasn't a very academic school, and having to catch up on O-levels and do like a term and a half of work myself, and then, you know, try and settle in and be very different from all the other children there. And there's, there's a number of Iranians in mm. this city mm. and around that have come... For, for various reasons, some are through religious faith persecution. Becca works at Food Bank and um, where Matthew delivers from Runmore, mm. Grief, and mm. um, 
they've got a couple of young ladies there, one of which has just gone through the asylum process now, which has been as horrific, almost as leaving, you know, it's just been a horrific process for her, just got right to remain, all of that sort of stuff. Do you spend much time with Iranians here now? There are a number of congregations, mm, around, I think. There's a congregation that meets in Ranmore, actually, oh, right, okay. in our in our parish centre. My, um, when we were working in Birmingham, the last church we were there, there was some refugees who came to us and uh, they came to our church there and were confirmed and Matthew uh, went to some of the official hearings and, and helped with their um, plea uh, but they actually then disappeared and we don't know what happened to them because there is that enormous number of people who come here for refuge and um, we don't welcome them and see their humanity and just go underground really and, and disappear. And I often think about her. I remember my mum came uh, and my mum's very fluent in Farsi, but she can still speak it very well. And we sat at the dining room table and uh, they, they had a long chat. And at the end of it, she gave my mum her Iranian Bible, her Persian Bible, because there's a tradition of, of gift giving and, and, and generosity yeah, sure. and hospitality, and that's the only thing she had to give her. So yeah. she gave away her Bible to my mother, mm -hmm. who didn't want to take it, but you have to, you mm -hmm. have to take it, you know. Yeah. So yes, I often think about people like, like her. Um, in a sense, though, also, we were sort of just trying to get used to being in England, being very peculiar kids who spoke with an American accent. We've been to an American <laughs> school, didn't know anything about British culture, really. <laughs> we're very unusual children, but also, I'm quite determined and I don't mind not fitting in with everybody else. I'm quite happy to plough my own furrow and I think that comes from that as well. I think that anyone who knows you, Cathy, the, the social activism's clear in your makeup and what you do. Mm. And as Paul's just said, I think it's it makes more sense now because it happened in those formative years, that sense of justice, that injustice you saw. Um, is that what motivates you sort of going forward in what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? It's really interesting. I think... A fair bit of it's got to do with my dad um, because he died um, in 2015 and he was a very faithful Christian. He actually is one of those Christians who was uh, what we might call a cradle Christian. My grandmother had a fabulous photo of him in his full choir robe singing at the church in Tulsill in London. They were in southeast London. A black and white photo, you know, these wonderful photos your grandparents have of your parents when they're children. And, um, but then he watched Billy Graham on TV as did many people at that time and uh, sort of had a conversion experience. Met my mum at university and they met um, through the uh, Christian Union at King's College where they were both studying and my, me and my sisters always just think it was very, very funny that they met at the hopping mission, which doesn't mean people jumping up and down on one foot, but it is, is the, the people who used to go and do the hop harvest in Kent and they used to have those big sort of mission tents and, and my parents both went to do, I think my dad did sort of first aid and medical support as a medical student. And so they got together and um, then felt that call. Um, and my dad, um, as a doctor, when we came back from Iran, um, obviously hadn't been in the British medical system, but he ended up, he was a physician in, in Iran, um, but he ended up working as a GP in the Bermondsey Medical Mission, which was a Methodist mission. And it started as two doctors in a old house and I used to go and help them as a receptionist when I was a medical student and they ended up in a really big teaching practice with lots of doctors and giving a brilliant service to people in Bermondsey and I went on visits with him and he was Bermondsey was, it was an incredibly poor area terrible housing I remember going with him to a flat and visiting a father and a son who lived there with no gas and no electricity 
um, and only outdoor sanitation, you know. And this is the 80s, not that long ago. So he had this sense of, of, of calling and service, and maybe that's part of it. And you've mentioned, obviously, in your childhood and as an adult, moving around a lot, mm. being settled in Birmingham for a time with Matthew <laughs> in 2000. How big an adjustment was that? Because obviously you'd been in different parts of the world, different situations, and mm. then sort of setting in the UK city. Was it difficult? Well, I think one of the things was Matthew's um, a vicar's son, as are many vicars, and moved around quite a lot. Um, he actually spent some of his childhood in Nigeria um, when his dad worked there and then also was in Sudan in his gap year working with refugees. So that was that for both of us had that overseas experience. I think that was one of the things that sort of drew us together at university. Um, but we wanted our children to have continuity in schooling. It was having both had very disrupted schooling. We felt we wanted that. And Matthew, you know, priests do usually move around and that's part of their career development. And he was... Um, fantastic because we moved within Birmingham Diocese uh, for two reasons, for the children's schooling and for my job, for my work, uh, my training as a consultant obstetrician eventually. Um, and when you get a consultant job, you don't really move to the other side of the country necessarily. So we, we, we were based in Birmingham and, and we also were in the rural sort of um, north there for a, a few years while Matthew did his PhD and I finished my training. And did you have a calling to medicine just as you've had a calling hmm. to net zero, to, to social justice and everything else? I think that's really interesting. I think if you like science, um, often people will point you towards medicine. But I think it was much more than that for me. I think I saw my dad and, and how much, how dedicated he was to his job. I also am a bit, um, I suppose, stubborn and even when... I was going to medical school. It was still reasonably male-dominated, and I'm always been quite determined to be able to do um, anything that I set my mind to, not not sort of shy away from it because um, it's difficult. I like a challenge, so maybe, especially going from my school, uh, there were 120 people in my sixth form in the school in London, I think, and I think I was the only person to go to university. Um, and I had to do that really off my own bat. It wasn't a very academic school, although it had great music, which I really enjoyed. Um, but um, it was good at being independent and just putting your mind to something and just doing it. So when you came back to this country, what mm. sort of faith um, setting were you in at that point? Because you'd had missionaries sometimes find it difficult to fit in yeah. certain different faith settings. So what sort of faith setting were you in when you came back? Well, when we were in Iran, we were, my parents were quite influenced by many American missionaries, some of whom were the sort of undercover missionaries that you find in different um, Muslim countries. And um, I was brought up with what would be described as a very conservative evangelical yeah. background. Although went to traditional church, Anglican-type worship with hymns, and I'd started to learn to play the organ in Iran before we left. When we went to southeast London and settled there, um, we went to the local church, and there was a wonderful organist and choir mistress the called church Jenny, of England, Church of England, yeah, very much still Church of England. It was up the road from where we ended up living and I ended up singing in the choir and there was a youth group, a really good youth group and uh, that's when I began to know more about that kind of music and I ended up learning how to play the organ, I already played the piano and so Jenny wanted somebody to play at eight o'clock on Christmas Day and Easter Day because she had a young family and traditionally there was music on those days when there wasn't usually. And so she said, I'll teach you the organ if you play those services and some even songs. So I was able to learn the organ, which I loved. And uh, that 
was part of my um, faith journey when I began to realize how important sort of music and, and liturgy and the, the being in a space, a sacred space. But the thing that was very instrumental for me was going to Teze when I was at university. Right. So I went to the Anglican chaplaincy when I was at university after my first year, which was a more liberal, inclusive approach because I'd, I'd begun to want to explore beyond how I'd been brought up um, with those very traditional views because of course some of those traditional views on women and sexuality and gender which I personally now have moved away from although have great respect that under our umbrella in the Church of England we have room for many different views and that's one of the, the good things about it and I hope that can continue um, but uh, I went to Teze in my first summer at Bristol and I was absolutely blown away meeting so many people from all over Europe from all different denominations I loved the ritual of praying three times a day. I loved the music. It was so calm and, and so different from the other worship I've experienced. And I began to run Teze prayers and do the music in, in, in Bristol with, with a team. And in fact, I went to Teze again um, with Matthew. I managed to get a bit of time off from my course by saying I needed to go on retreat. And so they agreed, even though I should have been um, in the hospital for the week. And I knew Matthew was going. That's one reason why I wanted to go. And uh, we ended up getting together at Teze. Um, that was in my fourth year of medicine. So it was a really important place for both of us, actually. Uh, we love an origin story for where relationships start. Well, that was it, I'm afraid. Ways. And yes. to be honest, in our generation, it's quite a lot of people got together at Teze. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like Greenbelt, similar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, so Matthew's ordained. Mm. You finished your training, mm. or a uh, level of training, I understand, in medical, you carry on with that training. We've got a level of training. You decide to go abroad. Mm. So both as as or have traveled and missionary kids or whatever that decision was easy to come by it was oh here we go what mm. what how do you feel about that at the time was it inevitable or do you feel that actually god called you outside of that i think um we we'd gone to new zealand already because lots of doctors would go and work in new zealand because it was right. just a nice place to work yeah, and we traveled around the world on the way back uh, you know in those days um we, I, I did a fair bit of flying, um, and that's one reason why I don't actually haven't flown for five years now, um, unless I really had to for an emergency. I prefer not to fly um, because I've done my flying, and I'm, you know, not in any way. Uh, everybody makes their choice on that. So um, we did travel quite a bit, and we went off to Egypt. I think that the going to Egypt, Matthew had a curacy um, in the Black Country in a post-industrial area, and we had two young children. The hours I worked when I was a junior doctor. Um, I, I'm, of the, I'm of the generation that's up to 120 hours a week yeah. um, when you start on Friday morning and you finish on Monday evening. Um, that changed, but I was still often working up to 80 hours. And I think we both needed a bit of a break, um, especially as I'd done my exams. And so going to Egypt was a wonderful opportunity for refreshment for Matthews. You know, the curacy was hard, his incumbent left and he was on his own for a bit. And he, he you know, it was brilliant training and he, he really enjoyed it and flourished. But that three years in, in Egypt was a real gift for us, actually, um, with the children and with a very welcoming sort of um, uh, overseas congregation, mostly of expatriates in a little tiny Anglican church that had one of only three organs in the whole of Cairo. So I got to play that as well, which was nice. <laughs> <laughs> and if we could sort of come to your time in the diocese. So hmm. again, you do a lot of activism work here, especially around Net Zero, um, Eco Church. 
you'd had that discussion with Bishop P. Did you initiate that? Did he sort of invite you to come and volunteer in the role? How did that first start? Um, it's, 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 it's interesting. I think this brings probably me to my early retirement, which is something I might get a bit emotional about, so apologies uh, for that in advance, is that um, in 2015, uh, my dad died of cancer. Um, and um, then a week later, I had a diagnosis of breast cancer. So I had my surgery the week after his funeral, um, and at this point, um, the children were sort of grown up. My, my um, daughter had just gone off um, to medical school. And um, at that point, I'd been working as a consultant obstetrician for probably about 15 years, and I'd taken on a lot of extra roles, uh, especially in clinical governance and safety and management, and it was very onerous. You know, I'd often had lots of nights without any sleep, and it was, Matthew was amazing and supported me greatly in that and, and you know, did a lot of things in the home alongside his busy job, but I think I was heading towards burnout anyway, actually. Um, and uh, so then I was ill um, and I took a year off. Uh, I had some complications with my surgery and that meant I couldn't deliver babies anymore. Um, and I couldn't do my job, really. I could do some aspects. So after a year, I went back to work. Um, during that year, it was... Uh, because I hadn't stopped work like that, even for maternity leave. I only took four months off when I had, had my son, for example. Um, during that time, uh, people were praying for me all over the world. It was extraordinary. And I think it, some people, that a kind of experience, either it strengthens your faith or it brings you to, to doubt it, and everybody's different how they respond. But I think I felt so supported. People contacted me, and if you have breast cancer, what happens is lots of other women who've had breast cancer get in touch with you. <laughs> and that was really extraordinary. And um, I had amazing support from lots of different people um, and from the church community. Uh, and so, because of course, I was you know, grieving for my dad at the same time. But I, I never had a crisis of faith. I, I felt really upheld. It was quite extraordinary when I remember it. And I had that time that I hadn't had. I had a whole year. Um, uh, and that was a real gift as well. And then I went back. And it was it was hard not being able to do the full job. But I still managed to do a lot of worthwhile work. Because I used to specialise particularly in women who'd been bereaved, families who'd lost their babies. When I started as a junior doctor, the service was terrible. If you lost your baby, you were given a follow-up appointment at the end of a gynaecology clinic. And you went and maybe for 10 minutes you saw somebody junior who said, oh, well, you know, here's some test results, off you go. We'll see you when you try again. Really inadequate. And not deliberate. It was just hadn't been properly considered how that service should be run. And I set up a much more holistic and I hope supportive service where families had continuity of care. I wrote. I wrote letters that went on for pages, telling them all of the results, going through everything. We, they had open access to come back. It's really important to give that care and, and love, really, to, to those families who go through that terrible experience. And I set up a special clinic called a Rainbow Clinic with a midwife where they, I'd look after them in the next pregnancy. And that would mean they'd have a plan and I don't, they'd only see me. Because one of the worst things when something like that happens is you have to go through your story over and over again. So that was a very special and important service. And I'm sorry if there's people out here listening who've lost babies because it's actually much more common than people think. And um, 
you know, my heart goes out to people and there's much better support now and the NHS is all, a lot more people have come on board with that kind of service. But it's one of the most rewarding things I did and some of the most extraordinary thank you letters that I had were from people who then we managed to get them through a future pregnancy and they had their baby. And for me, that was just made everything worthwhile. So I managed to do that during that time because I, I could do that with the physical restrictions from my illness. But we were com- I was commuting from Sheffield at that point. Matthew had had a job here. And at 55, I thought, well, actually, I think I'm going to stop. And that was really hard to give up the NHS at that point. But by some miracle, I was supposed to not do anything for six months. And then I met Jo Chamberlain at a meeting. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, oh, I've just stopped being the Dietitian and Environment Officer. Would you like to take it on? Because <laughs> I know you want to volunteer on something. And, and I'd always been passionate about the environment. So I went to see Bishop Pete and that's how it started. Thanks so much for sharing that story. I c- it's mm. it's it's a really important story, and I can we can we can sense in this room mm. how important that story is to you. If I can just leap to the NHS mm. as someone who's worked in the NHS for many years mm. through senior roles, through through, and has brought change into the NHS. Mm. When you see where we're at now with the NHS, and um, let's put it out there, we're all massive fans of the NHS. I think it's the most extraordinary organisation. But when you see the issues that face the NHS at the moment, how does that touch you? Because you, you've been through it and you also were trained as when perhaps a doctor didn't have a bedside manner. You literally, if a, you had a miscarriage or a child died at birth or whatever, it was, you know, whatever. We know those stories. How, how do you view the NHS now? And, and all the lots of the issues that it's going through at the moment, when you see it's on the news every day, isn't I it? I know. Oh, gosh, it, it's just heartbreaking, really. I, I think there's quite a lot of different ways of thinking about that. I think the first thing is I feel firstly in, enormously privileged that I worked in the NHS. I never did any private practice, even though I had the opportunity to do it. Um, I put all of my energies into that, and I'm proud and happy that that's what I did. And one, obviously, there's so many amazing aspects to, to working in the NHS. It's such a privilege. Um Extraordinarily, there were sort of teams because I was in one hospital for a long time when Which I became a consultant. In Good Hope Hospital okay. in Sutton Coldfield, okay. and um, that um, I, I I worked with people that I knew from student midwives who then became like heads of midwifery. And one of the things I really loved doing was mentoring and supporting, especially women, through because one of my jobs when I was a junior doctor training to be an obstetrician, I was the only woman in the hospital the only woman doctor. It was a very male-dominated specialty. Fantastic doctors, no criticism of that, but it was not balanced. And um, that made me even more determined to stick at it. And I actually pioneered part-time training. I was the first part-time trainee in the West Midlands because I had a baby and they were doing part-time training posts and I got the first number. So I had to develop all my own posts, I had to do all of my own timetables and everything. That was really important to me. So it's important to me that everybody had access to, 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 to to, to work and to fulfil their sort of um, their, their vocations in their careers. Um, so I'm, I miss, and I also looked after quite a lot of those people in their pregnancies and delivered their babies. So that was amazing too. Um, I miss that tremendously. Um, and I know that there are still, you know, amazing teams um, in the NHS. I um, feel that it's... Um, Somebody messaged me because somebody had asked me if I'd go back, you know, and I was saying, you know, they said, oh, please, can you come back? We even just come and do some management. And, and I said, no, I just really can't. I'm, I'm, I'm moved on now. Uh, but somebody said to me, it's a different animal now to when I left it. It's become so um, under so much pressure with pandemic and with not enough money. So I think that um, there are still amazing things happening there. My mum, my I'm sure, 
won't mind saying that she collapsed. She's, she's moved to this, this area recently and she, she needed urgent medical help and had amazing um, emergency support and is fine thanks to the work of the NHS. So there's still amazing work happening. We mustn't forget that. But I personally think that um, there is an agenda to run it down. I think that um, there's a lack of compassion. I think that Labour were putting lots of investment in and at the time when, and they've warned us and they said it's going to go down, the numbers have gone down and so we, we're not meeting our targets and um, it's, 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 it's a really sad thing to see and um, I just wish that we could put our money into that instead of some of the things that we put our money into because I think it would be actually economically sensible because the population, if the population is more healthy and well-being is better, yeah. then actually... Um, it's worth its weight in gold. Yes, agree. Um, I, I'd just like to thank you for that testimony as well, Cathy, because I mean, <laughs> what you went through and also during a time of bereavement as well is very difficult. And I think what is clear, though, is that the values of your father have carried through. I think that's something that can comfort us through those difficult times. You know, when we've lost loved ones, it's the values they stood for and influences. I think mm. that's passed through. I think it's fair to say that's passed through to, to you as well. Yes, I think that. And also to, you know, um, other members of my family, both of my children have gone into sort of um, public sector roles, you know, where they're... And, and I think it's, it, I have to pay tribute to Matthew because without him, I wouldn't have been able to do this at all. And um, especially uh, when we first had children in the 90s, um, most, you know, there were no men at the school gates. I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't a tradition, you know. Uh, there may be a very small number and it probably depended where you were, but that's not criticism, it's just how society was that, you know, most of the time, um, you know, um, it, it wasn't traditional for people to share the parenting and home responsibilities. And I've just been reading a brilliant profile of Michelle Hussein, who does this extraordinary job on Radio 4, and there's a brilliant interview with her. And she said, they say, how did you manage it? She's written a book about succeeding in the world of work as a woman. Mm -hmm. And they said, she said, I think something like I married an excellent person mm. and without all the support Matthew did and between us we wanted to show a model of how mm. you know um, we were able to both have our careers and he um, you know would, would, would do the boring stuff like pack the school bags and make sure that there was dinner on the table when I came home from work and, and has been an absolutely wonderful support to me in, in my career and I'm very lucky to still be married to him after you know 34 years of marriage. I think we need a sequel episode with Matthew, and I'm sure he would no <laughs> doubt say the same about you as well, Cathy. Uh, well, I was going to say the passion that you've obviously shown as a drive, as a, as a, as a young woman to push. We, haven't we had a number of extraordinary women on this podcast? Hmm. Let's pay tribute to that, Absolutely. who have pushed. Uh, it started uh, right back to Amanda Barraclough, one of our first mm -hmm. interviewees, who from an early age pushed back. And we've had a number of people that have done that, younger women and, and perhaps more mature women that have had to push and push. And it's an extraordinary story. And sometimes we don't recognize that within the church, I think enough of how much um, women have had to push in all of their sectors of life. So and we have to recognize our privilege in this as well, don't we? Uh, you know. uh, yeah, I, I find it, you know, I'm a 62 year old white man. And I jokingly say to my daughters-in-law, you know, hey, We've done a pretty good job up till now, haven't we? Which we, Blake, that's a joke, obviously. We've been a complete disaster. But it's very, very difficult for a 62-year-old white man to understand, to sit in that seat. We've done, you know, the, the, the Black History Month one that we did, which was just emotional beyond belief. And I think it's really important that the church 
changes, moves forward and continues to change. I'm off on a rant now, stop me in a minute, but... You're not going Richard Madeley. No, I'm not going Richard Madeley. Richard Madeley's in a different room. Um, (laughs) But I think it's really important that we recognise what has happened and the role that women have had to push in the church. But the church has moved a long way. There's still a long way to go. There's still a long way as Cathy raises her eyebrows. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we do have to say that the church is one of the places where things have moved has moved in all areas of society and it's moved perhaps in the medical profession not as far as it needs to go but isn't it extraordinary how far you've had to push yeah but i think also sometimes if you've got something to push against you can do more can't you you gotta look at it like that yeah you know and you become even more determined um and also i think it's just i think i've just been really really lucky because what better job can you have and to deliver somebody's baby you know and it's really interesting if you talk to women in their 80s they'll remember the name of the person who delivered the baby and the weight of the baby and what happened if they've you know if they've had a child and it's just my sister who's an amazing woman herself she's a music therapist and uh, she um, said to me once uh, just think your hands are the first hands to touch that baby when you deliver it and you know when they, yeah that is that is an amazing privilege. I feel very, very lucky to have been able to do what I did. So I'll share a little story. My uh, father, fortunately no longer with us as well, um, his name was Valentine, Valentine James Sheridan, and his father was called James, come from a Welsh mining town, and mm-hmm. his father unfortunately passed, passed away, down, uh, died down the mines when he was a teenager. But uh, he was born on Valentine's Day, and the intention was, as it so often was in those days, that his name would be James, James Sheridan. And as he was delivered... The local midwife, who was a very strong member of that Welsh mining community, said, "It's Valentine's Day. We shall call him Valentine." <laughs> and he was he was known as Valentine for Val for his whole Fantastic. life. And, yeah. and my nan said, "I couldn't argue with it." She told me that's what I was going to call him, and we called him that. And when her husband came back after being down the pit all day, said, "Where's James? Not called James. He's called Valentine." It's always called Valentine. It's that's extraordinary. Fantastic. That's fantastic. The power of the midwife. And that's why your birthday's on St Paul's Day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where you go with that. No. But so that drive that has driven you from mm. from a young girl coming out of Iran, that passion for social justice, I suspect is where we're getting to now with mm. the, the, the the climate agenda that you are involved with that push for equality in synod but also the climate agenda so how do you see that well your role in the diocese and wider when we talk about that where do you where do you get that drive from or what do you think needs to be done that's a massive question paul throw that one i I think that i think it's a really good question uh i think i've just had an increasing sense during my life you know when you are a child and you first realise how big the world is and you do those envelopes where you say, you know, I don't know, London, England, Europe, <laughs> the world, you know, <laughs> the Milky Way, the, yeah. the, the, the universe. And you suddenly realise, I remember it happened to me, I think, when I, I saw something about how many grains of sand there are on a beach, a sort of numbers thing. I've already been, always been quite keen on maths. And, and you suddenly realise how huge... Um, the universe is and how complex and it can either make you feel really tiny and unimportant or it can make you think wow this is extraordinary and I I think I sort of ended up in the second group and thinking um I I think all of us 
want to make a difference. Some of us are less fortunate in having the opportunity to do that. I've had the opportunity to do that. Although I, um, most, both of my grandfathers left school at 12. There, I don't come from a family of a long line of people who were educated at university, but my mum and dad went to university, first ones in their family. And they had that privilege because of things like grammar schools and scholarships and stuff and those sorts of things. And so I think we had that generation of people actually who were able to access higher education and, and think opportunities that they wouldn't have had. I went to university, I, I had a grant. I didn't, you know, I didn't have to pay any fees. So, you know, had the opportunity to do that. And I think that I was very, that's very fortunate. So I do also think of myself as very privileged. Why my kids call us the golden generation. Well, fair. Well, and quite. Yes, yes. <laughs> sorry, Ben. <laughs> ben <laughs> Not bitter ben, at all. Ben informed me that he's half my, he's my kid's age. And uh, yes, uh, but yeah, my kids tell me that we are the golden generation. Yeah, yeah I, I think there is. And I think in a sense, because of that, you want to give something back. And, 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 and also I think you, you've only got one life on this earth without feeling sort of, the, the drive and the pressure, I think there is a balance there. And I think, as I said, I sort of was heading towards burning myself out when I was working as a doctor. I've been aware of not, not doing that now. I've had this extraordinary opportunity to almost have like a second career. I wasn't really ready f to finish stopping work. So I almost made like my own new role. And there were quite a lot of people who didn't even know I was a volunteer because I tried to make it very professional as an environment officer. I had great support from the senior team and moved I learned I love to learn and I learned a huge amount about uh, the environment obviously most doctors you know doctors we're scientists at heart and 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 I really love learning about that and the glory of God's creation because the other thing is that people of faith have a huge amount to bring to the table when it comes to the climate and nature emergency and this is acknowledged you know by social scientists by many other people because actually the problem we've got is yes we've it's a practical scientific technical issue but it's also actually about um greed and it's about um when is enough enough and it's about not thinking of our neighbors who did the least to cause this crisis and are suffering the most and so um it's a moral question actually as well as what are the technical solutions and the political solutions and so uh, as a person of faith you know you bring that determination that there's a bigger picture that that you're doing this with the help of God that you have that there is hope as Christians with people of hope and you know there's that extra drive that makes you think you know it's the fifth mark of mission relates to caring for the environment to sustaining and renewing the life of the earth to safeguarding the integrity of creation and all of those things um are, are, i just think it's part of my christian calling and i have the opportunity and the privilege of time and energy and previous skills from my previous roles that have meant that i've been able to step into the the you know follow on the great foundations that joe and the working group set the support of the senior team had the opportunity to stand for general synod i'm now chair of the environment group there and now i'm on the commissioners which is an extraordinary thing i never thought i'd end up being a church commissioner but it's an amazing privilege to sit um, on those committees and groups for the next five years. Uh, the Church of England has been leading in um, the Net Zero agenda. It's been leading with, with supporting Eco Church, and there's been amazing progress in, um, in, in putting money there as well. Uh, we've got, I started as a volunteer, I was the only member of the team. We now have people paid for by national money supporting us. David Castle, our Net Zero Project Officer, and Sally Hunter has been supported as well, and we'll continue to grow the team and work together. So I think, you know, I just feel energized to to just try and work for the social justice and the climate justice, not just for 
people who are so affected, but actually for the natural world, I've, I've, I, you know, the complexity and the beauty and wonder of the natural world. You've got a teaspoon of soil that's got millions and millions of organisms in it. You know, the connections that are there. I'm a person who loves the idea of connectivity and partnerships. And you look, trees um, interact with 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 uh, other plants and 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 living things around them and and through the soil you know we're learning more and more about god's extraordinary creation which brings us you know to the need to to care for it because we've treated it very badly you mentioned that one of the many things about helping to tackle climate change eco church mm. it's been again a privilege of mine from a comms perspective when i had an email from yourself or from sally or david saying we've got another eco church and the excitement around it just briefly, just go over, well, first of all, what an eco-church is, but how can other churches become eco-churches and what are the different levels that they can achieve with it? That's, that's a really great question. I'm glad you've asked it. Thanks, Ben. Essentially, eco-church is a scheme run by Arosha, which is a charity, a national charity. And um, it's a system where you can go online and check how you're doing different areas of creation care. Worship and teaching is one aspect, which is the fundamental and most important because that's what's driving us, as I was saying, looking at your buildings and your land and also your community and global engagement, um, thinking about um, supporting charities or, or looking um, for, you know, to political change. And then your own personal lifestyle, your own carbon footprint and the way you live your life. And um, essentially, you look online and see um, whether you're doing well in those areas and you can register for nothing to start off with. And then you can fill in that uh, survey and then many people will already be nearly bronze, which is the first step, the first award um, on, on one or two of those areas. And with a few more actions and changes, you step by step, little by little, even little tiny steps you can move forward and be given an award and have a lovely certificate and a plaque for your church and just be recognised and acknowledged for the commitment that you've made as an eco-church. Um, there's now, I think it's it's over 6,000 eco-churches in England and Wales. It's ecumenical. All the churches, are, apart from the Catholic Church, which has its own scheme, are involved. And then there's the eco-diocese, which is the umbrella thing for the whole diocese, which we've just had our bronze award. We had that lovely celebration at the cathedral. I know we had lovely comms about that in Network magazine. And... Uh, you know, with all the different changes we've made with our policies and uh, training and uh, looking at different aspects of creation care, we've got our bronze award. And it's a it's it's a joy. Uh, one of the most moving things at the Cathedral Eco Diocese celebration in September was all the churches coming forward and saying their names from all over the diocese and working towards bronze or working towards silver. And uh, we've had our first gold church um, with St. Mark's in Broomhill. And um, they're now resourcing and supporting other eco-churches. So it's just a wonderful, positive thing. And um, it's sometimes there's people who just, it's too much and it's too hard and that's fine. But what I do when I talk to people and discuss things with people is um, just do the little thing that you can. And where is that now in Church House? Also has an eco Yes, award. it does. And the thing that helped us give that, if you uh, to get that award, was the um, Bug House and Hedgehog, um, <laughs> and Hedgehog House and the and the and the Bird House um, that we put up. And um, of course, you've got solar panels here. And I've, I saw the lovely um, plaques are up in the entrance. And in order to become an eco uh bronze eco we needed a bronze award for Church House. And so it's embedded. Um, I'm going to do a teaching session. 
um, this weekend for the foundation training and I've got another one coming up and I think it's focal ministry actually coming up and then foundation training so all of the teams have been engaged we've got the amazing buildings officers um, I think we all realize that you know it's for the sake of the world it's for the sake of, of people who are suffering people in poverty um, it's the sake for all living things but also for God's sake and that's Ruth Valerio who's a brilliant speaker who spoke at our conference a few years ago um, that sums up our Christian calling um, to care for creation and Eco Church allows us to do that in a kind of structured way. It gives you somewhere to start. And that net zero target we've got as a Church of England is actually more ambitious than mm -hmm. well, the government target, um, <laughs> certain nations targets as well from different COPs that we've held as well. In some ways, hopefully trying to help lead the way into being more ambitious than perhaps we are as a country, perhaps as a globe as well. Mm, it's interesting about the 2030 target because I was fortunate that just as I started this role, that's what happened in General Synod. Um, and an interesting fact was actually our, our best man at our wedding, Martin Gainsborough, who moved, who's now a bishop in London, who moved that um, 2030 amendment because originally it was 2045. And then just by a few votes, Synod agreed for 2030. And that's what we've got. So... I think people always say, you know, gosh, it's impossible, it's too taxing. But what I always say is if you're thinking, mm, I need to leave the house at seven o'clock to get to that party. Well, what I'll say is I'll say to myself, I'll leave at half past six and then I'm really likely that I will get there at seven. And I think it's, it's, it's an example of how set yourself an ambitious target because there's no doubt in my mind if we'd gone with 2045, the amount of work we've seen in the Church of England, in the National Church with our route map and the money that's come, we would be nowhere near that far along the path if we'd gone we'd still be thinking about it because it would seem a long way away but unfortunately we're really beginning to realize it's really urgent this is an emergency and I think I mean I spent a lot of my time I talked about this before in synod on the labor ward the emergency buzzer would go because a baby was in distress or a mother was in distress and you needed to do an urgent delivery and we used to have a target of 30 minutes to get the baby out and people would if it was safe to do so they'd run you know, you wouldn't sit around talking about it. If that emergency puzzle went, it was an emergency that meant go quickly and safely as you can, but go fast, you know, and the quicker you can do it, the better. And it's the same. We've heard the emergency buzzer. And so we need to run, not walk. My next question was going to be, um, I spent a lot of time in churches out in the sticks and, and right through the diocese. And I was going to ask you, if I go to St. Mary in the fold and they say to me, why are we going to do this? What was your answer? You've just said your answer. I think we'll go with that. We uh, should, I don't know how far, we, we've had a fantastic time. We've, um, we need to just do a couple of light-hearted questions at the end of that. Because <laughs> we've got an emergency to, uh, well. TV well, shows. <laughs> ben loves a gear change at this moment. He'll just come in with a, Fair. so what's your favourite Marvel comic? Anyway, um, I suspect, yeah, with yourself and Matthew are, are well-read. There are books on the, on the go all the time. Would that be right? So what are you reading at the moment outside of a climate change book? Because there'll be a few of those on the side. Um, what am I reading at the moment? Um, I have actually been doing quite a lot of climate change reading, I will be honest. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I, I really enjoy... Um, and it's not I'm not reading a book, but I, I, I do enjoy reading um, online articles. Um, I enjoy reading the Guardian app and and the and and, and BBC News. So uh, to try and just keep up because you know I think we've all got to be aware of what's going on politically. So um, I enjoy that. Um, 
I I really used to I enjoyed the Hilary Mantel novels those those were brilliant oh, and okay. uh, really um, you know sad that she's she's died and, and there won't be any more of those but th- those were those are books you know like this historical novels that really get your teeth into they're really beautifully written do tend to enjoy um, I've noticed I enjoy women authors in particular actually I don't know why that is but um, yeah I th- those are the kind of books that I like reading um, it may sound really terrible I don't actually have very much time. <laughs> For sitting around reading, but I, I do, I do enjoy. If I want to relax, I really like a puzzle. I really yeah, like um, a number puzzle, like Add some um, music on in the background. Yes, I love listening to music. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan. It is classical music that I love, um, and I love playing. Although I, I can't, you know, don't get so much time to play. Um, I'm a big fan of Bach, and I think because that's there's a first in the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> big fan of Bach. <laughs> And I love the, um, the Goldberg variations, which you may, may or may not know, but they're fantastic. Yeah, they're extraordinary, extraordinary um, piano music, which is a life's work to learn how to play them, really. And they're just beautiful. They're just otherworldly. I've been lucky enough to hear the St. John's Choir as well, because mm. just before Christmas, we had that snow. I live on a hill, so I was snowed in, but the main roads were clear. Um, Sarah Beardsmore, very much a friend of the podcast, sent to new project manager, it's part of the Woodseas Mafia along with me. So she kindly gave me a lift to the church. So I heard uh, you and the choir sing and um, obviously heard Matthew preach as well. And uh, in that space, because it is such a big church, mm. a big space, it does sound fantastic. Mm. That's sort of that sound around the whole church. I can't believe that I'm so blessed to sing with that choir now at this stage of my life. In other Matthew's other churches and, and you know, we've I've actually ended up being the organist and the, the choir director in the past. Um, in this um, church, I just get to sing. We have Philip, who's a completely fantastic organist and choir director. We've got lots of children singing with us now who are learning the joy of beautiful music. There's a huge, um, enormous amount of beautiful choral music, sacred music from the um, Anglican tradition. And I think that, you know, the fact that we can still sing music, we sang a beautiful piece of, of, of bird last night at the Epiphany Procession, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and it's still is beautiful and relevant and 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 sounds fantastic in that sacred space and if, and so much of the music we sing the sacred music um i have the privilege of singing even song a lot and of course we do the magnificat and the nunc dimittis and if you're going to ask me about my favorite bible <laughs> reading the magnificat's really high up <laughs> about you know um you know uh, raising up people and and sending the rich away empty and um, feeding the hungry and with good things and that's a radical, radical piece of scripture, which was actually banned during the Raj. They didn't let people sing the Magnificat oh, because it was um, too radical. So there you are. So, you know, you, you get to hear a lot of scripture as well and the beautiful words as well as the amazing music. I think we've got a, a little series in the back of my head now, Music in the Church of England. Yes. Mm-hmm. We could go on tour. We go to Ranmore and then perhaps a ball can contemporary, then perhaps a more Anglo-Catholic service. I think there's a little series there, Ben. Hopefully some Wesleyan uh, hymns showing my bias there. I think that's wonderful because that's the rich tradition. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very good idea. It's almost a spin-off podcast in its own right, in a way. Well, I I don't think we can go for spin-offs. But um, yeah, no, I think that'd be great, wouldn't Mm. it? My mm. final question is going to be a gear change then. There <laughs> we go. It's going to be which Avengers film have you watched? No, it's, Goodness. it's not. Um, it's not a Marvel question. It is a film question, though. Do you have a particular film genre or favourite film or a go-to that you'd watch? 
Well, it has just been Christmas. I'm not sure Cathy sits long enough, sits down long <laughs> enough to watch many films. I will say that um, we have a tradition. Um, I heard you talking with Eleanor about Christmas films. And so that made me think about it. And last year when um, both of my um, children were at home uh, for Christmas and also my daughter-in-law, we did a brilliant thing where we w- managed to watch huge numbers of Christmas films and they gave we gave them mince pie marks. So was it, it was eight mince pies, 10 mince pies. So this is a little WhatsApp group which had marks for each um and i have to say the muppet christmas carol was number one and that's all i'm gonna say after all that highbrow music discussion (laughs) just want to say that we we love that absolutely (laughs) even michael Caine said it was his favorite film he's ever done oh did he yeah i heard him talking recently yeah so we finished with the muppets i think that's great i think that's always a good place to finish a place to start and finish (laughs) kathy thank you so much for coming to talk to us it's been great it's been Really, really good. Fantastic story. We could have gone on for a lot longer. We will meet again because we've got. there's a few things that we want to do. I've just come up with a music idea, but certainly climate and the climate emergency is something that we're going to revisit uh, throughout the year, so we will talk to you again. But thank you so much for coming. And um, as we always say, words of grace at sheffield.anglicum.org if you'd like to get in touch. Um, we have got some great guests coming up. We're looking forward to the rest of this year. So yeah, it's been a great start and uh, nice to see you again, Ben. You too, Paul. Take care. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.